0: I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. In this episode of Your History, Your Story, we'll be speaking with retired U.S. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Dan Hampton. Dan, who completed 151 combat missions as a fighter pilot in the Iraq War, Kosovo conflict, and First Gulf War, is also a New York Times best-selling author. Dan will be discussing his most recent book, Valor, the astonishing World War II saga of one man's defiance and indomitable spirit, that tells the amazing story of U.S. Marine Lieutenant William Bill Harris. Harris was captured by Japanese forces in May of 1942 during the Battle of Corregidor, but soon escaped, only to endure hardships, including an eight-hour swim in a shark-infested bay, shipwrecks, guerrilla fighting, recapture, and two years imprisonment in a Japanese POW camp, where he suffered beatings, torture, and starvation. Bill Harris was a true American hero, and this is his story. I'd now like to welcome Dan Hampton to our show. Welcome, Dan. Good afternoon. It's
1: a pleasure to be here. Thanks.
0: Well, I am very much honored to have you on our show. I just finished reading your book, Valor, the astonishing World War II saga of one man's defiance and indomitable spirit. The book was absolutely riveting. I really could not put the book down. And, you know, we're going to talk about the book in a second, but I want to talk about the author. Dan, you are a retired lieutenant colonel from the U.S. Air Force. You were in from 1986 to 2006, so 20 years of service. Thank you for all you've done. I really am honored to be speaking with you. My pleasure. I want to ask you, Dan, where did you grow up and what led you to enter a career in the military?
1: Uh, I grew up on the East Coast, on the uh, around the Chesapeake Bay, uh, so it was sort of a world of uh, sailing and lacrosse and, and eating blue crabs, that sort of that sort of environment. But I went to college the first time uh, out west, and I I went to school initially to be an architect. That's what I wanted to be, and I was I guess it was the beginning of my junior year when I realized, you know maybe maybe wearing pleated pants and cloth ties and drawing buildings all day probably wasn't the most exciting thing I could do. Uh, and, you know, that was that was in the, the late 80s and sort of, you know, the heyday of a military buildup and people were, you know, talking about it. It was in all the news. And, and my dad had been a Marine fighter pilot. And so I'd always been, you know, surrounded by aviation. And I, I was already a, a private pilot. And I don't know, something just clicked. And I, I thought, you know what? I think that's about the coolest thing a 22 year old guy could do is to is to go be a fighter pilot and I was fortunate in that i i passed all the qualification tests and exams and managed to graduate from college on time and made it through pilot training high enough to get a fighter and I spent the next 20 years flying them and i, I couldn't I couldn't have asked for a better way to spend that time actually i Thoroughly enjoyed it. It was one challenge after another, but I, I learned a lot of things that have stayed with me my entire life and I think paved the way for for these books that I now write.
0: Yeah. Now, when you, when you first went into the military, did you really think it was going to be 20 years that you'd be in? Or did you think, hey, I'm going to try this and see how it is or what have you? Or did you think, hey, I'm doing this. This is what I want to do for a living.
1: I don't think anybody at 22 thinks this is what I'm going to do for 20 years. We, we just, especially guys, right? We don't, we don't think that far ahead. Uh, the initial commitment for pilots at that time, I think was seven years after pilot training. So you had to give them eight years altogether. And by the time the eighth year rolled around, I'd already graduated from weapons school, which added another five years. And so that, you know, gets you to 13. And then at that point you think, well, you know, what's seven more besides I was still having a good time. I got to fly jets almost every day. You know, I, I'd wake up on one side of the world and go to sleep on the other. Uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun in many ways. And I didn't, to be honest, I didn't have anything else to do. So I, I stuck with it. A lot of my friends, you know, got out early and became airline pilots. That didn't really appeal to me. That's sort of like driving a big bus. And the airlines are always up and down and up and down. It just didn't seem like a real stable way to live. And I knew the only time I was ever gonna get to fly fighters in my life was was in the military. That's not something you can do obviously in the civilian world. So I just stayed with it.
0: Yeah, you know, I've spoken with two, recently I've interviewed two pilots from World War II. One of them ended up flying a P-51 Mustang and the other one ended up flying a, a bomber. And yet both of them said that when they originally wanted to join the military, they wanted to become fighter pilots, because it was cool. (laughs) And that's exactly what you said. How can you top being a fighter pilot for a sense of adventure, right?
1: Uh, You know, I think the Navy SEALs or the Special Forces would probably argue with it. All three, you know, kind of the same kind of person gravitates towards it. So yeah, I understand that. I to, to be a fighter pilot meant, at least when I went through, you had to be the top one, two, or three graduates of your pilot training class. So you were with the the very best pilots that the, the Air Force could put out. And flying a fighter, you know, I, I can't really describe it because there's no common frame of reference, you know, to describe what you do. And it's just a constant challenge day after day, year after year. And I think that I think that grows on you after a while, you know, you get used to that sort of environment. I'm not sliding the transport of the bomber guys, but I mean, that to me is like watching paint dry, you know, you take off, you fly someplace and you go land someplace pretty much straight and level the whole time. I, I think I'd have lost my mind. They do good work. It just wasn't for me. I'm glad I ended up where I ended up.
0: Yeah. What kind of planes did you fly, Dan?
1: Aside from the trainers, I flew um, F-16s primarily, all the versions of it. Uh, And then right at the very end, I was in the F-22 program. I also got a couple hours in uh, some MiGs and some foreign airplanes when I was uh, an exchange officer with the Egyptian Air Force. So I got to do a a little bit of everything.
0: Now, you had 151 combat missions. So... It wasn't just about flying the planes, you were in combat. So let me just talk to you about that a bit. I see that you also received the Purple Heart among other decorations that you received. Uh, What would you say was probably the scariest time or times that you can remember during those combat missions?
1: You mean which one sticks out the most?
0: Yeah. Do you have one or two that stick out the most to you as where you kind of felt, hey, hey, this is, this is really scary. This is getting pretty pretty bad right now.
1: Well, they were all more or less like that. But there, there were a couple during the last uh, war, the, the Gulf War, that particularly brought me up short. And I, I kind of felt like Austin Powers. I, I'd used up all my mojo. You know, I, I have no explanation for how I came through either one of those. I'm grateful I did, but, uh, and, and, you know, at the time there's not time when you're, when you're moving along at 900 feet per second, there's not time to be frightened, uh, really. And in fact, I think all that gets trained out of you. It's, it's later, you know, when you're, when you're on your way back to your base, or when the day is all done and you're laying there in your, in your bunk, staring up at the ceiling and you realize what could have happened. That's, I think when you, you, you get those, those twinges in your gut. But I think all fighter pilots are very good at compartmentalizing things. So you just stick it into some room in your head and lock the door and forget about it and go on to the next day, because that's what's important is what's coming up.
0: Yeah, uh, thank you for that. Now, you did receive the Purple Heart, though, where you you were actually injured in the service. Are you okay telling us how that happened?
1: Uh, There's nothing dramatic about it. It was, uh, what, 26 years ago, three days ago, uh, I was at Cobar Towers. You know, I'd like to say I was storming a beach, you know, on Iwo Jima or or involved in a 50 to one dogfight, which is how I think you should earn the Purple Heart. Um, But I was at Cobar Towers when it got blown up and I got moved physically by the force. I got blown through a wall from one room to another. Uh, Incidentally, none of the pilots that were injured in that blast even contemplated a Purple Heart, the wing leadership at the time thought that we deserved it. And they were the ones who put us all in for it. We had nothing to do with it. And in fact, for most of my career, I didn't really wear it. I was didn't mean to be disrespectful. I just didn't think it ranked up there with guys, you know, that lost arms or legs in, in combat because, you know, this was something I had no control over. I was just in the wrong place at the wrong time.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that, Dan. What about the most gratifying it was there any point it, it probably is difficult to, to narrow it down to a single one but was there a particular time or time period where what you did in the air force what you did was the most gratifying to you
1: uh i would have to say there's two uh instances one of them was graduating from the fighter weapons school which is uh, was the hardest thing I, thing I think I ever did uh, in the military. Uh, and to make it through that leaves you a changed person forever. And I went on after that to be a weapons officer in in a fighter wing, which you're sort of like the instructor pilot for the instructor pilots. And I, I really took it seriously. And I really did my best to pass on everything that I learned and to be to be not just a a great fighter pilot, but a very good instructor, and to teach other guys things that would help keep them alive. I I felt better coming out of that assignment, I think, than I did out of any other previous place that I'd been. And the second one was one of those combat missions you talked about. I managed to get down through a sandstorm outside of a little little Iraqi town called Nasiriyah, and there were some Marines that had been cut off I think they were part of the 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marines, if I remember right. Anyway, they'd been cut off, and the Iraqis were moving troops up along one road to surround them and cut them to pieces. But there was also the biggest sandstorm I've ever seen in my life coming up from Saudi Arabia, and it was just rolling over and blacking out everything as it came. And I was out of gas and out of time, and I'd already been airborne for like eight and a half hours. I was tired. Uh, Most of my weapons wouldn't work because of the time of day and the sand. So I was restricted basically to using my cannon, which means I I had to get down very low and very close to these guys to to make it work. And I I managed to do that. And the Iraqis weren't able to wipe out this, this company of Marines. And I felt very good about that. I felt I paid back any debt I ever owed the military and the air force, uh, for that. And, and I have always felt very good about that particular mission.
0: That's incredible. I'm trying to, I'm trying to visualize what you were seeing at that time. And it's, it's kind of scary. Read the book. Ah. Uh, You said you
1: liked my book. So read the first book. It's called Viper pilot. And I think that mission's in there.
0: I'm definitely reading that book next, but now let's talk about your new book. Valor the astonishing world war two saga of one man's defiance An Indomitable Spirit. It's about a man by the name of, he's a U.S. Marine Corps Lieutenant William Bill Harris. This guy was incredible. Uh, What he went through and the spirit that he had to live, to survive, to fight, you know, just to, to grab every day that he could is just, it's just crazy exciting. So can you take us through the book from the standpoint of who was Lieutenant Bill Harris? Where, where did he come from? What was his backstory?
1: Bill Harris was uh, in many ways typical of guys that ended up fighting in World War II and that he, you know, was, was born after the First World War, grew up in the roaring 20s, and then sort of came of age during the Great Depression. Uh, he wasn't a sharecropper. He wasn't poor. He came from a very distinguished family in Kentucky. His father was a Marine general, and his, on his mother's side, there's a long line of politicians, lawyers, public figures, that sort of thing. Um, but you know, he grew up during that time, and that had to make a, a an impression on him. He was a 1939 graduate of the Naval Academy, and his first posting was to China. He was uh, he was in the second or the fourth Marine Regiment, the Shanghai Marines, and I think he got over there in the summer of 1940. Uh, had a pretty interesting year. Everybody with a brain that was involved in the military or politics knew that, that war was coming. It obviously been going on in Europe since 1939, but, but they knew that there'd be a war against Japan. What everybody pretty much got wrong was where it was going to start. Mm. The China Marines stayed in Shanghai and then were moved to the Philippines in November of 1941 uh, because everybody thought the hammer stroke would fall in the Philippines. That's where the Japanese would attack. Very few people really thought they would go all the way to Oahu and attack the Pacific Fleet. Of course, in hindsight, it's easy to see why they did that. But Bill ended up in the Philippines. He was in uh, Cavite, uh, in Subic Bay on the west side of the the Philippines on December 8th, of course, which is the same as December 7th across the international dateline, when World War II began. Uh, the Marines were moved down to Mariavellis, which is a port on the very end of the Batan Peninsula, and then they were moved across to Corregidor, because if a last line of defense was going to be possible, the Marines were the ones that were going to have to do it. So that's where he was uh, when Batan fell, and then that's where he was during the very brief but violent, bloody battle for Corregidor. The army general in charge decided to surrender. Corrigidor, He really didn't have much of a chance. Doug MacArthur had deserted him, and the Japanese had threatened to kill all the wounded and the prisoners and the captives and do what they were going to do to all the female nurses if this general didn't surrender. So he didn't have much of a choice, and, and so Bill didn't know what to do except go along with it. He's only a lieutenant, and when everybody over you orders you to surrender, I guess that's what you do. He realized pretty quickly, though, that that's not that wasn't for him. Uh, and the brutal treatment that he received there, uh, he was beaten almost to death uh, by four Japanese. When he recovered from that, he realized, I'm, I'm done. I'd rather escape or die trying to escape than be a POW. So he, uh, with, with another officer, an army officer named Ed Whitcomb, who became governor of Indiana uh, later on, they swam uh, the Bataan Channel across Manila Bay to Bataan. And they escaped. And so that's what this book is about. It's about the next three and a half years of of Bill trying alternately to get to China or to Australia or just to get somewhere. And he continued to fight the Japanese with the Philippine guerrillas. And and the book follows him through all of that. I I was fortunate in that uh, his daughter gave me a 1500 page manuscript that Bill had written after the war, which for a writer, it's a gold mine. I mean, I found myself some days not doing any writing. I was just engrossed in reading the, the account of all this and being inside this guy's head, which made the book, I think, very readable because all of the thoughts and first-person dialogue and everything else in the book came right from Bill Harris. None of that's from me. I put a little note up at the top to, you know, at the front of the book so people would get that. I, I hope they do. Uh, because it's important, all of those thoughts and feelings and everything that was expressed came from Bill Harris, uh, which I think makes this a, a very special book.
0: Oh, oh, definitely. And everything is meticulously footnoted. And I, you talk about getting this treasure trove of information from Harris's daughter. It's like when I, I go up into the attic to find a picture or something like that of an old family picture, and all of a sudden I get the whole album out. Next thing I'm up there for two hours looking at it, you must have been like a kid on Christmas or a kid in the candy shop, shall I say?
1: (laughs) I I was. I was. It was very, very exciting. I've never had a book write itself, more or less. I mean, it wasn't an easy book to write from an emotional standpoint, I guess, but technically it wasn't very difficult because Bill had already provided his perspective and his thoughts on all of this. I just had to put it together in a form that made it readable for for everyone else.
0: Yeah. Now I'm going to talk about, Bill Harris here. So you you get into his mind in the book, you're kind of, you're going through his thought process, like, um, all right, if I, if I stay a prisoner at Corregidor, they may take me somewhere else and something bad could happen there. And I no longer have my own choice to do something. So you kind of go through that decision process, which is pretty quick for him. He's like, I'm, I'm out of here, and I'm going to find somebody who's going to come with me. And he finds Ed Whitcomb to go with him. But the choice he's making is, is not a really easy choice. Certainly, if he stayed there, there was a good chance he was going to end up as a POW, maybe taken somewhere where he could never escape. But the other choice is to swim <laughs> for hours. I think it was eight hours in the bay, which was shark infested. They had actually seen sharks in it. It was at nighttime. There were patrol boats out there. I'm trying to put myself in their position. The terror that I would have felt about anything that knocked against your your leg or your foot, what was it? But, But yet he felt that he still was in control if he made the attempt to escape, as opposed to just staying there and getting, like he got punched, he got hit, he got knocked unconscious, all that. He felt like it was something that he could control. I, I sense that throughout the book, that you get into his mind about why he makes his decisions.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good point. Um, and he was surprised, and frankly, so was I, that nobody else wanted to come with him. They knew they weren't gonna stay on Corregidor, all right? The, the rest of the guys, and he had a couple of academy classmates there with him too. They knew they were gonna be taken across to the mainland. So their reasoning was the main Philippine island, Luzon, is a lot bigger than Bataan or where we are and we can escape over there and very quickly fall in with the Philippine guerrillas we'll have a lot more options than if we, if we leave here now. Because really there was only one place to go and that was to Bataan and Bataan was crawling with Japanese troops. So I guess I understand objectively why some of them didn't do that. But I would have done what Bill Harris did and his reasoning was, you don't know what's gonna happen. They could just be, you know, they could line us all up and shoot us tomorrow. They could cart us over to the mainland, line us up and shoot us we could we could get we're going to get sicker and weaker the longer this goes on he'd already had dysentery once i mean they crammed thirteen thousand guys into an area about two football fields square you know so sickness was very real And bill realized i'm not going to be any stronger than i am right now i'm going to go now so that's that's why he did it that's one of those calls that you know every man has to make for himself Um, I don't fault the other guys, you know, for not going, I am sure they were kicking themselves, you know, for the next couple of years that they didn't take the chance when they had it because they never really had another chance to get away. So Bill was right.
0: Yeah. I mean, do you know, generally speaking, those prisoners from Corregidor, how well did they fare? Like if, if Bill had chosen to stay there, you know, what would have been the chances that he would have come home? Any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I got the, um. I think from the notes I had on that, they lost they lost 30% of them over the next couple of years. Uh, here it is. During the first half year of captivity, 30% of the Americans died while 80% of the Filipinos died. That was just during the first year of captivity. So uh, again, he was right. You're not gonna get any stronger. The chance of getting sicker and weaker is much greater when you're crammed into a place like that. The Japanese had no experience taking prisoners because they didn't surrender themselves. They didn't have, they didn't make provision for that. So the POW camps in the Philippines and other places were particularly bad because the Japanese had no real clue or real motivation to keep these prisoners alive.
0: Yeah, what I understand is that the Imperial Japanese were basically looking upon anybody who would surrender as cowards, really, right?
1: they regarded them and i forget what the word is but the word is less than human to them honor is everything and they didn't they could never reconcile how you could surrender and still keep your honor we know that there are times when you don't have a choice you're either going to surrender or die and so a westerner would think you know what as long as i'm alive there's hope when i'm dead i'm dead uh, a japanese soldier would would not look at it that way they would they would prefer death over over surrender. So they, they didn't have any real concept of it. Now, there were always exceptions. There were many Japanese naval and ar- even some army officers that had spent a lot of time in the West, uh, in Europe or the United States, and they understood very well, first of all, what they were up against, and second of all, how we thought and reacted. In fact, the Japanese general in charge of, of pacifying the Philippines was a guy named Hama, And he spoke perfect English. He was very atypical. And he was an army officer. The Japanese naval officers were usually a bit more cosmopolitan and well-traveled than the Army officers. This guy had served with the British in World War I on the Western Front. I think he'd come away with a military cross. He was an amateur playwright. He spoke English. You know, he understood us, he understood us quite well. And So there there were always exceptions. Yamamoto was another one. I wrote a book about him, the one that came out prior to uh, Valor. Uh, There's a lot about Yamamoto in there. So they are a fascinating uh, paradox, the Japanese, and you were never quite sure what type you were going to run up against. The the book opens, as you know, you know, with that scene in the the convent up in the northern Philippines, and the basic Japanese soldiers would have raped all the nuns in the convent, except for a Japanese officer, who understood the difference and was westernized to agree, said that they were holy women. Nobody's going to touch them. The first one that touches them gets his head cut off by me. And so you never knew, you know, if you're going to run, run across that type, or you're going to run across the, the type of guy that would bayonet wounded, by, you know, wounded guys in a hospital bed and rape the nurses. So um, it, it, it's an interesting cultural study that makes the war in the pacific to a large degree vastly vastly different than the war in europe
0: yeah i was thinking about lieutenant harris in the beginning when he's in corregidor and the the japanese soldier wanted to take his watch and harris is like you're not taking my watch and of course that's when he got that terrible beating and i think that was kind of a wake up call that hey you know i could get killed very quickly here and yet he, I mean, he stood up and said, you're not taking my watch. It's almost like he, he wouldn't trust himself not to continue acting that way and, uh, you know, and then suffer the consequences. But it sounds like he, always, he he had that anger sort of in him against the people who had you know, imprisoned him and perhaps uh, that put him at risk of making a guard angry and killing him. So I was, all, all through the book, I'm thinking to myself boy, he's, he's getting, he's going to get himself into, into more trouble by doing that. Uh, which is why I think he, well, he,
1: <laughs> he raise a good point because he, he did that later on in the book. He ended up in the same prison camp that Lou Zamperini did from, you know, the unbroken story. Unbroken, yeah. And, you know, that's one of the things that made Bill so defiant was that he never, he never gave up, not up here. OK, and, and anybody that's been in any sort of life and death situation, I think, would tell you that a large part of it is mental. You know, there are some people I think that were born dead. If you get my drift, you know, they they're going to they're going to give up and they're not going to make it. And there are some people that absolutely will never quit. Bill was one of those. Um, there were times I think he probably could have done it smarter. Uh, we were always taught in the event we got captured. Uh, how to resist, which was not to do anything overtly that was going to piss off the guards to the point where they were going to injure you physically because when you get hurt in that situation, you either recover or you die. And as long as you can keep your strength and your health, you have a decent chance of making it through. Well, th- these guys weren't taught this, you know this was before any of that came came to light. And they were just openly defiant, which really really pissed off the Japanese. You know, they were used to the, the Chinese rolling over and being subservient. They were used to the colonial uh, militaries that they'd fought in the Dutch East Indies and, and some of the British colonial troops. They'd never come face to face with the Americans before. So they didn't really know how to react to that. And Americans, you know, are nothing if not blunt and openly defiant sometimes. And Bill, you know, being an officer was not used to being treated uh, contemptuously. He didn't like the Japanese. And, and he wasn't, he he would have viewed any sort of capitulation to them as a victory for the Japanese. And he wasn't going to give them that.
0: Yeah, yeah, I noticed that I was so afraid for him when he was being defiant. I was like, Oh, no, what's gonna, you know, what's gonna happen. I saw the movie Unbroken, I read the book Unbroken about Zamperini. And when I saw his name in the book that he was actually at the same POW camp, I was like, wow, okay, now, you know, I'm connecting all this. One of the things that it was fascinating. Of course, the detail in the book is just so riveting because you feel like you're, you're on these boats because there were so many attempts from Lieutenant Harris and the people he was with to escape or get to a safer place or a more advantageous place on these small boats. And some of the boats it went from a log that they were floating on or a piece of wood to a, a pretty well equipped larger boat and some things in between but it always seemed to be a, a monsoon or, uh, you know, just bad weather or, you know, the, the equipment got wet or something. But I, I was wondering, you know, how does a human being just survive the hardships that were consistently uh, hitting this man, the hunger, the gnawing hunger all the time? Where's the next meal coming from?
1: Yeah, I, I, think, I think when that's all there is, then that becomes your whole reason for existence. You know, he, he, didn't have a, he didn't have a wife or children, you know, but I have known guys that did that became POWs. And all of that kind of fades to the back of, of their heads. What matters to them is surviving. And that becomes the focus of everything. I have to survive. I have to survive so I can get back into the war, which is what Bill wanted to do. He was already in the war. You know, he never really left it, but he wanted to he wanted to come ashore on Iwo Jima and fight in Okinawa with his Marines. You know, he didn't want to be a guerrilla fighter, but survival becomes the war. And for him, that was one way to defy the Japanese was to never get captured again and and to keep evading causing trouble whenever he could and stay alive. And, you know, I think he I think he would have made it, except I don't want to give the book away, except for what happens, you know, at at the very end on that on that last island. I think he had a real good chance of making it. Uh, A few others had done it before him from the Philippines. There's a couple of really good stories about guys that had managed to get from the Philippines all the way to Australia. Uh, Very, very riveting stories also.
0: Yeah, I think of the the miles we're talking about from the Philippines to Australia. I know there were he, he was talking at points to, to go to China, but you're talking about huge distances. And now he had, had he had, had training, you know, for sailing and uh, marine navigation and things like that. But you know, these are little crafts and you know, poor provisions. And again, there were always enemy patrol boats around. And, you know, they didn't have uh, modern navigation equipment. They had, in some cases, just old maps and things like that. So yeah. he never gave up, though, did he? he kept trying, kept trying, kept yeah. trying.
1: I think he had a, I think he had an old um, uh, atlas that he'd gotten from somebody. Somebody gave him an atlas, which was probably 10 years old. You know, a large scale map, like something you dig out of National Geographic. Um, and yeah, I mean, being a naval academy graduate, he knew how to sail, but that was in the northern hemisphere. You know, the stars down there are completely different. Uh, so he, you know, he had to he had to overcome that. But you know, he knew he could do it. He never lost faith in himself. He knew that no matter what happened, he he'd find a way, and and he did. You know, that's sort of the essence of of Bill Harris.
0: Yeah, yeah, and uh, when they would come back to land and they hadn't gotten to where they had hoped to, or maybe they, they did in some cases, they found people, friendly uh, Philippine people who were helping them out. I felt rejuvenated as Bill and his traveling companions were by the food they were given the place to sleep, some safety, but there was always a danger in the back of his mind, right? As to somebody maybe, might give them away. Somebody might just be friendly now but they might be getting word to the to the enemy. So I guess Bill always had to keep one eye open it sounded like.
1: Yeah, and that's that's certainly fair and as you recall from the book, you know, the one of the first place he lands as he's trying to get down through the Philippines, he runs across guys that that say they are guerrilla fighters but in fact they're just bandits and outlaws. And, and you see, you know, we saw that in this country a few years ago, the shocking number of people that will use any situation to further their own ends or, you know, the, they like being lawless. They like destroying things and, you know, they're going to tear up Portland or wherever. The, he ran into the same sort of people in the Philippines, which is astonishing given that it was a world war and their country had been invaded, yet there were still groups of people who were in it only for themselves. So, yeah, he had to sort out who was good, who was bad, who was going to be able to help him. And even among the Americans, you know, that that section of the book that deals with the, the two Americans that he was on the boat with, Yeah, you know, <laughs> you would think, you know, that you would you would stick together through thick and thin. But that's not always that's not always true. That's not always the case. And I remember being puzzled when I was researching it, why they split up you know because they'd come together they were relieved to find each other they traveled a, a while together and then i kept why did they split up and it, you know it was like maybe 800 pages into bill's manuscript where i finally found the answer you know and put that into the book so all of those all of the human elements are going to continue to manifest themselves no matter what the environment which is kind of reassuring in a way and also a little bit sad in a way
0: yeah yeah i agree and not only was Lieutenant Harris, brave, resourceful, but he was super smart because he's kind of looking at the people who he's with and, and saying, he's not just saying, Hey, they're, they're such nice people or whatever. He, he kind of looked to see what, what was going on with them. What is there, as you mentioned, what is their motivation? Are they, are they here just for themselves and therefore, you know, what does that mean for an american in their camp that this this group of people are out for themselves are they people who are going to look for uh, an advantageous situation uh that looks looks better with the americans or with the japanese or do we just use the turmoil to run roughshod over everybody else in, in the area so bill always had that he's always listening sort of he got his ear to the ground it sounds too to judge who the people were, who he was with, and whether it was safe to stay there, wouldn't you say?
1: Yeah, and that's to a large degree, that's a very apt characteristic of a professional military officer. Judging people, making very quick, accurate decisions with very bad information. You know, that's what you get paid to do, and that's what he was, he was trained to do. But also that's a result of the environment that he, you know, spent the next, you know, the last couple of years. Trying to survive, you get used to not taking people at, at face value. And, you know, if you want to stay alive, you're, you're going to keep an ear to the ground and one eye open. And that's what he did.
0: Yes. And I also know that he was always looking for information, particularly anytime they ran into uh, an American, another American, whether it be um, somewhere in the Philippines or in the POW camp, who had more information about what was going on in the in the war outside of where he was. He always wanted to find out what's going on how are the Americans doing against the Japanese and so on and so forth. So I think information must've been very precious to him. Wouldn't you say?
1: Yeah. And I think that's something that, that modern readers, especially younger ones probably will have a hard time grasping because they were raised, they're raised now in an area of instant communications and, you know, it wasn't it, it just wasn't like that. The only information you got was word of mouth or, you know, if you were fortunate enough to get mail, maybe. But all the mail was censored and, and rifled through. So the best source of information were new arrivals, either to where you were fighting or, you know, new prisoners that, that would that would come into the POW camps. And, you know, Bill's parents hadn't heard anything from him since I think it was March of 1942. I think that was the last time he was able to get a letter out. They had no idea for, for three years, over three years, whether he was alive or dead or where was he And you know, that'd be just awful, I think, to, to have a, a child and you couldn't account for it, especially in the middle of the biggest war in history.
0: Oh, it would have been terrible. You know, you do a very nice job in the book also of giving a little, little tastes of what his mom and dad were, were going through, what they were seeing both on the home front what was going on around them during the war in in the uh, mainland U.S., uh, but also what they were thinking about with regard to their son. As his dad and a military man, a general, brigadier general, I believe uh, Bill's father he was. Yeah. So he he knew a lot about what was going on in the war, but he just didn't have any information about his son. And You know, he sounds like he was trying to be stoic, but by the same token, he must, his heart was aching. You get that sense that, you know, my boy and and where was he? You know, it must've been terrible for his dad and and many parents of military people who are missing in action. That must be a terrible thing to go through.
1: Yeah, and I I was fortunate in that I had all their letters, Mm -hmm. which is where all that came from. Bill's mother's letters to her husband, the husband's letters back, I think, uh, and, and I always like to put the social stuff in and the home front stuff in just to give people a feel for what the rest of the country was doing and why attitudes might have been the way that you know, they were at the time. And whenever I could, I would inject a little bit of humor, you know, like the bit about the politicians just to keep it from being, from being too dark. But I really admired Bill's mother because not only was her son gone, but her husband was gone too. He was on Guadalcanal you know with the first marine division which was right at the epicenter of of our early counterattacks against the japanese and he fought all the way through the pacific war you know i think he came home once for a month or so uh during all that but you know she she could have lost both of them they did lose uh bill's uncle you know he was captured in the philippines along with bill you know so i think in microcosm it's a it's a good Glimpse into a lot of American families and what they went through uh, at the time. And that's one reason why I write these books. You know, in my own way, I I think we owe it to them uh, to not let these stories be forgotten and for people to remember why we enjoy the freedoms and the and and the life that we have today. It's because of guys like this. And they're not just names on tombstones and cemeteries. These guys all had. They had lives, they had plans, they had loves, they had you know things that they were they, they were gonna do. They were just like we were and yet they put it all on hold. And in some cases never came back so that this country could endure. And I think we, we never can forget that, never.
0: I'm, I'm with you 100% on that. And I think about the, the greatest generation and I, I always try to think why were they the greatest generation? And they were you know as you said they were born right right after maybe at the end of world war 1 they went through the great depression they were sort of seasoned by the great depression and then this world war that was just so so massive and the sacrifices uh, that were made both by the military and of course the people at home who were you know losing family members, but they were also working in, you know, munitions factories and airplane factories and everybody was sort of joining the effort. But what I really loved about your book was that it was an excellent history of the Pacific war, as well as the home front, what was going on on the home front, what were the attitudes and uh, what were individual families perhaps facing when they didn't know the whereabouts of their loved ones, you know? So Oh, it was it was just a fantastic book, but I want to just focus in on one additional thing about Lieutenant Harris that I found interesting that as the book proceeds, he starts to have some little discussions with himself, particularly as he engaged in some engaged in some guerrilla warfare so he he felt like he actually was fighting the Japanese. He was on the sideline anymore he was actually doing his part. but he starts having this little discussion with himself like Maybe I maybe it's okay if I, I sit on the sidelines till the end of this war. Maybe I'm, I'm okay. I'm I'm well fed. I'm safe here. I've done my part. I've you know I was captured. I escaped. That was my part. I've fought as a guerrilla. I've trained the people who are fighting the Japanese. But then he goes through this thought in his head and says, "My duty is to get back into the war again." I was, I was particularly drawn to that because uh, of the type of person Bill was and how much sense it makes that he would have that discussion with himself. Any thoughts on
1: that? Yeah, it shows that he, he's very definitely a human, you know, and I think given what he'd been through, it's perfectly natural when he's finally in a place that's safe. They said, yes, stay here with us, He's got food, he's got a place to sleep, you know, he doesn't have to worry about anybody betraying him. I think it'd be perfectly natural after everything he'd been through to say, well, what why don't I just stay here? Right. But it's, you know, it's it's sort of like uh, it's sort of like the movie Castaway, remember? Oh yeah he ends up on that island and he's on that island and he's safe, he can eat, he's not gonna die but he can't stay, he just can't stay because he can't live out his life on that island. Well, Bill, Bill couldn't sit out as he saw it the rest of the war if he's still fit to fight, he's still a serving military officer, he still took an oath, despite everything that he did, he felt like he had to get back, he had to continue to try. And so that's why ultimately in that situation, he did, he did not stay, he, 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 got, he kept trying to get back into the war.
0: He felt that was his duty. So, and and look, I mean, he he had so many really close scrapes and starvation, and I mean, he went down to like 120 pounds, and he was over six feet tall, barely able to move in some cases, and yet he still wanted to get back into the war because he felt that it was his duty. And and of course, when he heard fresh news about the war, I, I'm sure that motivated him even more. And I don't want to, you know, again, people just got to read the book, but, you know, it gets pretty scary near the end of the war. And I know anytime I read about as it gets near the end of the war and you're a POW and the people who are holding you captive in the POW camp are about to lose the war, you start to be very fearful of what they're going to do to you. Are they going to say, okay, sorry, go, (laughs) or are they going to shoot you and just eliminate you? as revenge or just to eliminate you as a threat. So it must've been a really scary time for Lieutenant Harris and his fellow POWs.
1: Yes, uh, most definitely. The, uh, the Japanese actually put a kill all order out um, and they were in fact going to order all the POWs killed. Now, whether or not the local Japanese commanders would have done that, I suspect most of them would have. Um, But the war ended very suddenly. And that's another reason that that it was so important to have the emperor surrender Japan instead of, you know, being forced to militarily because the emperor was God. And if God said surrender and don't kill anybody, then they weren't going to break their word to their God. That didn't stop some of them, though. And in fact, MacArthur, I'm not a big MacArthur fan, in case you got that from the book. I could Um, tell that. (laughs) Yeah, well, anyway. MacArthur actually caused the death of, I forget, a few thousand POWs because he delayed, you know, coming into Japan. He, he wanted to d- delay the Japanese surrender until he got there because he felt entitled to claim the Japanese surrender. And they ended up delaying it for a few days. And, and quite a few British, Australian and American POWs were killed uh, as a result of that. But you're right. You know, the rest of them, they didn't know you know, and Bill, even then was still trying to think of a way to escape. So I'm not sure what he would have done, but I can't see him letting himself be lined up and, and shot or beheaded. You know, yeah. I, I think he would have, he would have done something. Fortunately, it didn't come to that.
0: No. And he, he always said, he always said in the book that if something was going to happen to him, he was going to take a few people with him. I think was one of the things he said, and uh, he wasn't going to go down passively, certainly. So, Dan, the book was impeccably researched. You mentioned that you had the diaries and letters and things like that. Just incredible amount of information at your fingertips. But you know, it was all raw material, but it, it takes a really skilled author to put that into a really flowing story that just grabs the reader and just keeps you going. But I, w- I want to ask you, what specifically drew you, to write the story about Lieutenant Harris? Obviously, there's so many stories in World War II and and other wars. What was it specifically that drew you to write about him?
1: I think initially, um, it was because I was researching Vengeance, the book prior to Valor. And I came across his father on Guadalcanal and did some cursory research, found out that he had a son who was also fighting in the same war. So fathers and sons that fight in the same war is sort of interesting. And I I made a note of it and then promptly forgot about it while I was finishing Vengeance. And I I love to find stories. I mean, most people, or at least people that are interested in the Second World War, can tell you in general terms, you know, what happened in given places. But, But I love to find the untold stories because there's millions of them, literally millions of them out there. Untold stories. And, and we're losing track of so many of them because these guys are mostly all gone now. So when I found out a little bit about Bill and then read about you know, his life later on and, and, and how all of that ended up, I thought it was a very compelling story and a very good way to tell the Pacific War from a point of view that most people weren't acquainted with you know, the, the behind the scenes, the POW to the guerrilla, you know, the guerrilla fighter type of guy versus, you know, big battles on Saipan and Iwo Jima and Okinawa. This is, this is one man's very personal struggle against the Japanese.
0: That's terrific to hear that because my next question was going to be, I think you sort of answered it already, but what do you want the main takeaway to be from the book Valor? What do you want the reader to come away with Like the main thing?
1: Pride. I'd like people to remember that it's perfectly proper and all right to be proud of this country. You may not like what's going on today, I don't, but I I feel that what's happening today is not representative of most Americans. It's a very loud, vocal minority on both sides, you know, that are getting all the press. The vast number of Americans are squarely in the middle. And we need to remember stories like this. And I think. You know, I get asked this quite a bit regarding valor, comparing Bill's defiance to the defiance, say, in the Ukraine. And I I point out that I don't think that spirit's dead in this country. Mm. You know, it's easy to look at the, you know, the wackos on the news and in the news and think, yeah, this country's sliding into the abyss. But I don't think so. I think those people are just chaff in the wind. And the vast central core of America is still very Very much alive and very strong. And if we had to, and I hope we don't, but if we had to, I think most people would find some of Bill Harris within themselves and would perform just as well.
0: So well said. Dan, thank you so much. This has been great. And coming from a person who has given so much of himself to his country, I really appreciate that. And I highly recommend that anybody listening will look to get your book. Can you tell us how? somebody might be able to get a copy of your book.
1: Sure. It's, I was blitzing through a JFK the other day, and it's in all the airport bookstores. You can also get it obviously on Amazon. I could, I could, I could order anything on Amazon. and It would be here in 36 hours. So you can, <laughs> you can always get it there. Um, Goodreads, you know, Barnes and Noble, I think Costco has them too. I mean, there's, I think, I think they're, they're everywhere. And, and I would ask, uh, if people read it and like it, please favor me with an Amazon review. That would keep me writing. If you don't like it, please don't write a review. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but that's nice. And I, have a, I don't have a website anymore, but I have a Facebook page. Uh, if people want to communicate with me, I will always get back to you. It may take me a while, but I, I always respond so people can find me that way as well. And I'm happy to talk about this book or any of the other books.
0: Well, that's great. And I I love history and I am very interested in military history, but just the the personal stories that are embedded in the books. Now I'm ready to read your book, Viper Pilot. That's the next on my read list. So I'm looking forward to that, but I want to thank you again. And uh, do you have a book that you're thinking about writing now?
1: I'm in the middle of a of a book right now and i'm putting together a proposal for another one so i'm always busy doing something kids in private schools i don't have a choice (laughs) yeah you better get writing (laughs) well i hope kidding
0: i hope you do i hope you do because i'll be looking forward to anything else that you're going to be writing so dan thank you so much for being on our show and i hope you have a great
1: day my pleasure and thank you james
0: you're welcome bye-bye thank you for joining us for this episode of your history your story You can connect with us on Facebook and YouTube at Your History, Your Story, or on Instagram and Twitter at YHYS Podcast. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.